this week on Hope for the Broken. Christianity is not what we have to do to earn God's favor. You already have God's favor. Therefore, the motivation to do the things that we do is not to earn more of God's favor, you see. The motivation then is to do the things we do as a response to the favor that God has already shown. That's the difference between relationship and superstition. Jesus desires a relationship with us. And when we miss Jesus, we miss the whole point. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Life Lessons. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part six, titled Spiritual Superstitions. We are in the middle of a teaching series where we're working our way through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And uh, we've entitled this sermon uh, series, uh, Life Lessons. As we're taking a look at uh, some of the positive examples from the nation of Israel and some of the negative examples from the nation of Israel and, uh, and how that applies to our life today. And what we're finding is, is the message in 1 Samuel is extremely relevant to us today. That's because God's word is always relevant across all times and, and in all cultures. And, uh, and today we're coming to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me there to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to work our way through the entirety of that chapter here this morning uh, in a message that I've entitled Spiritual Superstitions. But to this point, we have talked about Hannah, uh, who is Samuel's mother, and how uh, she prayed desperately for a child, and that God answered that prayer and gave her Samuel. And she had made a vow that she made good on, and that was to give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. And, and then we saw how uh, young Samuel desired to pursue holiness, but there were these other spiritual leaders, quote, spiritual leaders, in place at that time that were truly evil and they didn't care about pursuing holiness and we saw that that they're going to be judged for that but Samuel's going to be blessed for pursuing a life of holiness and last week we took a look at what it meant to learn to hear God speak that Samuel had to learn to hear God speak and that we can too today as we talk about spiritual superstitions what we're going to see is how the nation of Israel in their spiritual darkness did not pursue a relationship with God, but rather turned to superstitions. And they placed their faith and trust in superstitions instead of the God that desired a personal relationship with them. Now, if you know me or you've been around me any bit of all, you know that I love baseball. I got to play baseball a little bit in high school, and I get to coach my boys in baseball from the time that they were little to even now. They're, I coach a homeschool varsity baseball team, and, and I just I, I love baseball. But baseball is probably one of the most superstitious sports that there is, right? It, it is a very common practice that when a team is on a win streak, you do not wash the uniforms, right? 
Now, if that gets to be a really good win streak, it's kind of neat because you can take your jersey off and throw it in your locker room and it actually stands up, right? And uh, it's just nasty, a nasty practice. You don't wash your hat. You don't wash your helmet. You don't wash your batting glove. Nothing, right? You, you keep doing what you need to do in order to keep on a win streak. It's superstitious. When you take the field or when a coach walks on the field, what do you never step on? Anybody know? The foul lines. I see some of y'all are superstitious too, right? And, uh, and so you don't touch on the foul. I, I knew one a Major League Baseball player, uh, he would always go and touch second base whenever he took the field and then went to wherever it is that he had to go. Um, there's also the pre-batting routine, right? You got to do the pre-batting routine. I, I've seen people draw a cross in the dirt, in the, in the batter's area, and, uh, and then step in the plate like that cross is going to save you from that fastball, right? You know what I mean? And, and then they would do, you know, some sort of, you know, fidgeting with their hands as they have one foot in the batter box, one foot out. They're fidgeting with their hands like that's going to help you hit a curveball, right? But there's superstition. You have to do the same pre-bat routine. There's also the rally cap. Everybody know what a rally cap is? I mean, when you need a few runs and the late part of the games, you turn your hat inside out, right? And, and you're, you're, you're rooting for a rally. There are also curses in baseball, right? One of the most famous curses in baseball is the curse of the, the Bambino. You guys remember this? In 1919, the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. And Boston has struggled to get back to the World Series ever since. And of course, if a... If a pitcher is pitching a really good game, what is one thing that you do not mention to them about what they're, how they're performing? No, oh, you don't even say the word. Don't even, don't even talk to the pitcher. Let him come in and just be isolated because you don't want to jinx him, right? All these superstitions in the sport of baseball, and it's part of what makes baseball fun. But I would want us to, to see today as we leave today that the Israelites began trusting in the superstitions surrounding faith and they were missing a relationship with God. And I think that that is very easy for us to do in our day and time and in our culture. In fact, I think there are many ways in which we have chosen superstition over a relationship with God. But we're going to get to the fact that because of the poor spiritual climate of the nation of Israel, they relied more on these superstitions. So we're going to examine the superstition, and then we're going to look at the surrender as a result of the superstition, and then we're going to look at the sentence, the the judgment that came from God. And then following that, we're going to talk about two life lessons that we learned from this passage here this morning. So let's begin first by looking at the superstition. Read along with me in your copy of God's Word, 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Now, a couple of things about this is we learned that the Philistines are the oppressor here. Israel is most likely uh, uh, defending itself. Israel has encamped at a town called Ebenezer, right? That, that's probably most familiar to us because of Ebenezer Scrooge during Christmas time, right? But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about uh, a town called Ebenezer. And we're going to find out later in our study that an Ebenezer is actually a monument. It's, it's a stone of remembrance 
that God is going to ask his people to erect so that they can remember that God has helped them. That's what that means. God has helped me this far. And, and so that's what an Ebenezer is. And the Israelites are encamped in Ebenezer, the Philistines in Aphek. It's about two miles apart from one another, and then they will be engaged in battle. And the Philistines had a major victory, killing 4,000 Israelites. Verse 3, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now I find that interesting. The spiritual elders, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel deduced from the defeat that God must have been involved in this defeat some way, somehow. That God was somehow judging them. They, instead of turning to God and saying, God, why did this happen? And dealing with the sin that was in the camp, they instead turned to superstition. This is what we see here. It says, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. You see how they failed to acknowledge the spiritual state in which they were in, and instead they turned to superstition. Now, a couple things about the ark, it's important to know here. God instructed his people to build an ark. It's a wooden rectangular box, looks something like this on the screens, less than four feet long, and is covered with gold. On the top of the ark sat two cherubim facing each other with their wings spread out toward one another, and it formed a seat. The Israelites believed that the very presence of God sat there upon that seat. And inside the box were several sacred items. The Ten Commandment tablets were inside of the ark. A portion of manna. You remember what manna was when they were wandering in the wilderness? This bread-like substance. The word manna, by the way, means what is it? And so when they would wake up, they would say, what is it? But they would, they would feed off of it. And that's what gave them nourishment while they were wandering through the wilderness. So a piece of manna was contained in there. And then Aaron's rod was in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant served as a visible sign of the presence of God. When they would see the Ark go before them, they would know that God was with them. Now, we might think these elders, we might have a tendency to look down our nose at them and say what idiots they are. But, but to be fair to the elders, the ark did have power associated with it. In fact, in a, in a lot of cases, as the, as the Israelites were marching into the promised land, the ark, the presence of God, gave them great military uh, victories. One of which was at the Battle of Jericho. You remember they shouted, they marched around seven times, they shouted and the walls came tumbling down. Remember that from VBS singing that song? And, and so they, they did have military power. And so what they're doing is they're saying, wait, wait a minute, we remember a time that God has moved before and what we really need to do instead of turning to God and repenting from our sin, what we need to do is recreate that moment. We need to recreate that point in time in which we saw God move way back then and we need to do it again now, right? And so they're trying to plug and play here from the past. Now let's, let's look, pick up from there and see what happens. And, and by the way, when you do that, when you try to manipulate God, what they, that's what they were doing. Trying to manipulate God, it's not going to work. And that's what we're going to see. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, if you've been with our study, you know these are two bad dudes. 
These are evil men posing as priests. And they're in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they're in the presence of God. It is not a good mixture for evil in the presence of God. Now verse 5, it says, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. What does that remind you of? This recreating this victory at Jericho. Verse 6, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with the very sort of plague in the wilderness. So the Philistines have heard about the reputation and the ways in which God has worked. But verse 9, they say, take courage and be men, O Philistines. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been, get, been to you. Be men and fight. The Israelites are trying to manipulate God instead of coming face to face with their sin. The ark becomes this genie in a bottle type thing. Now let's look at the surrender. That's the superstition. Now let's look what happens as they surrender. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled. They retreated, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So what the Israelites tried to turn into a holy war, God said, no, it's on you, for you haven't repented from your sin. It's extremely important whenever we are approaching God to know that we must do so humbly and as sinners forgiven by God. And they failed to do that. They were very prideful. And a staggering loss of human life occurred. 30,000 soldiers. But more devastating than all of that was losing the Ark of the Covenant of God. This most sacred peace. So we've looked at the superstition. We see the surrender. Now let's examine the sentence, the judgment. It's not enough that Hophni and Phinehas died. Oh, much more happened there. When the news of the catastrophe reached Shiloh, more devastation occurred. Eli was there awaiting news from the battlefield, and he hears increasing heartache. I want you to imagine the the weightiness of the news that came. Israel fled. They retreated. Okay. The army suffered heavy losses. Oh, no. Your two sons are dead. Oh, my Lord. And the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. Oh, no. Look at what happens. Verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, which is between Ebenezer and Aphek, And he ran back to Shiloh the same day. That's 20 miles. The dude ran a marathon with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came to, and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so set that he could not see. He was blind. 
And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, well, how did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. I want you to see the power of losing the ark of God. Verse 18, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. Now, I don't know if that means that he was you know, heavy. I don't, I don't know. Or if it meant that the judgment that fell upon him was heavy. But he had judged Israel for 40 years. That's a pretty bad situation, right? The superstition just isn't working. Using God to manipulate him to get our means does not work. It didn't work for the Israelites then. It does not work for us today. And just when you think it can't possibly get any worse, it does. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for the pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending to her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Now, parents, expecting parents, this is not a name that you want to name your child, okay? Ichabod. It means literally the glory of the Lord has left. God has departed. Ichabod. And it's that way she named that because she came to the realization of the spiritual state of Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So we see the superstition, right? We're trusting in, in, a, in a manipulation technique. We see the surrender, the loss and then we see the sentence, the impending consequences that came. Now, this is a very sad story. But a little bit of a spoiler alert. It gets better from here. And, and there's a reason for that. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Let me talk to you about two life lessons worthy of note for us today. Life lesson number one. Always choose relationship with God over spiritual superstitions. Superstition does not work. When the elders of the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant into the battle, their motive was to use it as a weapon. And when they did that, they chose superstition over a relationship with God. What would have been an expression of a relationship? It would have been, oh God, we're defeated. Why? Let's confront the sin in our camp and let's deal with it. That's a relationship with God. But they chose not to do that. They want to weaponize the ark. They wanted to manipulate God for their own purposes. That is the definition of superstition. Manipulating God for your own agenda. Look back at verse 3. I want to show you a key word here in this topic about relationship versus superstition. It says, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us. 
Circle, highlight, underline that word, it. Here's what I want you to see. The Israelites placed their faith in an it instead of a he. That's where you get into superstition. When your faith is no longer in God and it is in the things that you do, you have drifted from a relationship to a superstition. Does that make sense to you guys? And they were trusting in a peace, not in the God that the peace represented. When we look around our culture, I think we see evidence of people taking a superstitious approach to faith. I want you to think about it in a minute. Don't we at times try to manipulate God in our life? Confession time, I know I do. Right? For example, we have a tendency to think that if we pray more, well then God will have to respond positively in our difficult situation. Or sometimes we, we realize that the real motivation to, to give to the poor and to serve the needy is so that somehow we might get something back in return. We're trying to manipulate God there. Or we also strike bargains with God. God, if you do such and such, then I will do this and that. You know who does this the most? College students. God, if you pass this, help me pass this test, then I'll do, and you, you know, list whatever. Have you ever made a bargain with God? You ever been on an airplane and encountered turbulence? I pray that all the time. God, if you get me safe on the ground, I'll go to Africa only to encounter more turbulence. You know what I mean? But we strike deals with God. What's that trying to do? It's trying to manipulate God. That's an example of superstition. And I'm not saying that praying is bad. And I'm not saying that seeking God in a dire situation is bad. No, I think God wants us to do that. But there is a fine line in doing things because we're motivated by love and the difference between being motivated by manipulating God. There's a fine line there. And the difference between superstition and relationship is the heart. What is the motive within the heart? Can God answer prayers of any kind? Yes and amen. You better believe it. He did for Hannah, right? We read about that. But remember, Hannah's prayer was not a manipulating prayer. It was a prayer that was birthed out of a relationship with God. Right, And so she prayed that prayer of desperation. And yes, God showed up. And yes, God answered. But she was not trying to manipulate him. It was a prayer of relationship. Does God bless our faithfulness? Yes and amen. He does. We do reap what we sow. Samuel's parents were faithful to the Lord. And God blessed them as a result of it. But there again, they were not faithful to the Lord to get something from him. They were faithful to the Lord because of his faithfulness to them. That's the difference. Here's a truth that we need to know, beloved. God is not a genie in a bottle that can be manipulated and do what we want him to do. And truth be told, we don't really want to believe in a God like that anyway. You might say, well, why not? Well, if God is a genie in a bottle, then he's not God. If God is waiting on our beck and command, then he is not God. We become God in that case. And we tell God what to do in our position. That's a dangerous position, beloved. And so God is not a God that can be manipulated. If he is, he's not sovereign over all situations. He's not above everything. He's waiting on our commands. 
That's not the way God operates. And God will always work for two things. For your good and for His glory. That's how God will work. And Christianity is the only belief system in the world in which we don't have to try to please and manipulate God. I want you to think about it for a moment. All other world religions, you have to pray at the right time. You have to attend the right number of times. You have to give all of this stuff in order that one day, fingers crossed, oh, you've done enough to get into heaven. Here's my question. When do you know that you've done enough? Like, who sets that? Who makes that determination? Is it a priest, another human? Well, how do they know? Right? We don't have to do that. You know why? Because God's already done everything, or Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done to please God. And He's done it on our behalf. Christianity is not what we have to do to earn God's favor. You already have God's favor. Therefore, the motivation to do the things that we do is not to earn more of God's favor, you see. The motivation then is to do the things we do as a response to the favor that God has already shown. That's a key difference. That's the difference between relationship and superstition. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I've tried religion and it just doesn't work? You know what they're actually saying? I've tried to be a good Christian so that God would show up in my life in this way. And so they haven't tried Jesus. They've tried superstition. And guess what? Superstition will fail every single time. It'll fail us. But Jesus never fails. And so therefore, it is important to prioritize relationship over superstition. Here's the other thing. When we, when we put our faith in the things that we do, you know who we miss? We miss Jesus. It's like we bypass Him. i, I got to do these things in order to get to God. Oh, no. Jesus desires a relationship with us. And when we miss Jesus, we miss the whole point. And so don't miss Jesus. So, life lesson number one. Choose relationship over superstition. Life lesson number two, surrender is a good place to be. Surrender is a good place to be. Remember what happened to the Israelites? Why did they, why did they surrender? Lost 34,000 soldiers in two days. To put that in perspective, that's more than the United States lost in the war in Afghanistan. In the entirety of the war. In two days, they lost 30,000 soldiers in battle. They lost every priest that they had. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they died. They lost the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred object, let alone a poor child was named Ichabod. Israelites ran for their lives. The glory of the Lord departed. Utter surrender. You know, sometimes God has to allow us to hit rock bottom before we will allow Him to move in our life. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes it takes us hitting rock bottom before we finally surrender and give everything to Him. That's why I say surrender is actually a really good place to be. 
It is the moment. Surrender, if I could define it, is the moment by which we realize our utter despair and we turn to God. That's the definition of surrender. Have you surrendered? Have I surrendered? Have we given everything to the Lord? And again, I don't want to steal too much from future messages, but what we're going to see is when Israel hits rock bottom here, it's only one way up. Because God then takes control. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples of what happens whenever we do surrender and then what happens whenever we don't surrender. When Jesus was calling the, the 12 disciples, remember most of, the, most of the call was simply, come, follow me, right? And many of these boys, I'm going to use the name, they're boys, teenagers, they had to leave their jobs, they had to leave their families, they had to leave everything to follow this man named Jesus. They had to surrender everything in order to follow Christ. But how did they, how were they used by God? They started this little thing called church. Maybe you've heard of it, right? God used them in a powerful way, but they had to surrender. What about the other side of that token? What happens when we don't surrender? You remember the example in, in Luke about the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and he said, how do I get to heaven, Jesus? You remember what Jesus told him? Go and sell everything and follow me. In other words, what Jesus was saying Get to a place of surrender. And you know what the story says? It says that he wouldn't do it and he left sad. Left sad. When we surrender, blessings follow. When we surrender, God steps in. When we get to the end of ourselves, we see what God can do. And it's important. It's important for us as individuals, it's important for us as a church. We must constantly position ourselves in a state of surrender so that we can see God move in our midst. Because there is nothing within you and me that could possibly manipulate God in a way to see Him move. We have to surrender. What is it that you need to do to get to the point of surrender in your life? Because I know one thing to be true. It's at that point that you'll see God step in. Was it painful for the Israelites to surrender? Oh, you bet. There are times in my life where I have had moments of surrender, utter surrender to the Lord, and those are some of the most painful moments of my life, but they're also some of the most blessed moments of my life. And I know that there will be stories echoed all throughout this room of people, whenever you got to the point of surrender, that you saw God meet you at that point of surrender. It's because that's how God works. We have to get to the point where there's nothing good within us that we trust God. But where you surrender, God will take over. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. 
please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at trinitytx.org. If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.